You're listening to the Complete Concussion Management Podcast with Dr. Cameron Marshall. Ask Concussion Doc is a show where we answer your questions about concussions, treatment, and rehabilitation to help practitioners better manage these injuries. Enjoy the show. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Ask Concussion Doc. I have a special guest today. He's been on the show several, several times, Dr. Paul Herkel, who's a naturopathic doctor. He's also an advisory board member to Complete Concussion Management and one of our clinical instructors. He's also one of the co-founders and clinical members of the Concussion Fix program. Today, we are talking about fats. I actually have to think of a clever title um, about this episode, <laughs> so I'll have, to, I'll, I'll, I'll have to think about it, but... Um, so I want to talk a little bit about um, fats from a dietary perspective, both um, from a neuroprotective uh, facet. Um, I don't necessarily want to call it concussion prevention, but we'll call it neuroprotective. I think that's probably a better term. And then also um, um, from post-injury and concussion recovery and can, you know, dietary fats or increased fat based diet help with, with that recovery. And so we'll start off here talking a little bit about keto. Um, now there is some evidence from animal studies that have looked at ketogenic diet, uh, particularly in mice, that was the ones I've seen, uh, Mm -hmm. finding that it does have positive effects on concussion recovery. Um, and so, Let's talk about it. So could high fats be good for concussion recovery? Why? Why not? Yeah. So I think if you talk to anybody that's been in the concussion world long enough, <clears throat> you're going to come across ketogenic diet. You know, there's some big proponents out there that are a fan of putting patients on ketogenic diets. And the whole idea behind a ketogenic diet can is you want to decrease refined carbohydrates and switch the fuel source for the brain specifically to instead of burning glucose, which is its primary fuel source to burning ketones, which are fats. Now ketones are naturally produced when you break down fat in your body, your body will reduce these substances or uh, they will produce them. You can also increase dietary consumption of fat and that will also increase ketones. You can take exogenous ketones and and consume them. And there is a tremendous amount of interest can in this area among researchers. But as you said, there still hasn't been that clinical evidence to show that it definitely improves uh, brain function and, uh, and concussion recovery specifically. So there is some translational data, which is the best way I can put it. So from a mechanistic action, animal studies showing that when you go keto, which is less than 30 grams of carbs and majority of your dietary intake is fat. I'm I'm talking about 90% of your caloric intake per day is fat. You can then get kind of four main benefits. Number one, lowers inflammation. There's evidence on that. There is improved Insulin signaling, that's a really important linchpin to a lot of neuroprotective diets in general, including intermittent fasting, but also eating um, more, you know, cutting back on carbohydrates in general without going keto, but then full on keto, you get improved insulin signaling, which is neuroprotective. 
You do have some increases in nerve growth factors that are produced when you are in a ketogenic state. Uh, and then finally, and probably most famously, ketones are an actual fuel for your mitochondria. It can kind of become a preferential fuel that evolute from an evolutionary perspective, it makes sense because our brains we're always having a, a supermarket available to supply it with fruit and carbohydrates, which are easy to use sugars. So our brain is adapted and evolved to use fats as fuel. And there's a switch that happens over the first couple of weeks when somebody's on keto. So that fuel switch into ketosis is where you get some of those benefits. So I think that's a pretty good overview to start with. And, and, and I think that definitely mechanistically, I will say, Cam, that it's not a diet I use a lot with my patients. I use it specifically in situations where uh, there's a number of factors to consider, but you, you maybe they did well on doing exogenous ketones. And then we went specific on ketogenic diet. They tried a more conservative diet and they did not get the results. We go keto. So that's kind of my initial dive into keto. Do you think this, like, I mean, you talked a little bit about, like, it sounds like it's a multi-mechanistic action point, Very right? So. You have, you have, you have improvement in mitochondrial function because it's using different fuel sources, particularly in concussion, because we know that we have, um, we have reduced blood flow. We have a reduction in, in, uh, our, our ability to break down glucose, you know, for, for that reason, we have this, mm -hmm. you know, this ATP drop and all that now. So we have that element. Now, how much of the keto diet do you think is actually related to reduction in inflammation from re just reducing the carb intake? And how much do you think is attributed specifically to the increased fat? Or is it? It's, 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 it's hard to pull and parse those two things out, Cam. I think it's like there, it's like a package deal. You, you get both, like you get improvement in insulin signaling and it's, and it's also a very rapid improvement that occurs. That's why some people get, you know, this keto flu, you have an adjustment to using a different fuel source. And if you've been eating really poorly up to then it's, you know, there, it's a big shift. Um, so the approach that I often take with patients is that before we jump into keto, why don't we start by just taking out everything refined to start with? And you're kind of already going, if you eat a more paleo style diet, which is um, a lot easier to adhere to. And that's the biggest problem. Like we're talking about the benefits of keto. It, it, there's two main issues with it. Number one, it's really hard to stay in ketosis. Like I've patients and there's a lot of even experts that have uh, that advocate for keto, but when you start testing with keto strips, which is what you need to do to see if you're actually in ketosis, you're, you're actually, unless you're eating always tons and tons of fat, bacon, you know, avocado, like certain things, um, you need a ton of fat, not everything, what we consider fatty is even going to do it. Like it's not protein. You actually need to do a lot of fat and that's the mistake that people make. So they're kind of in this like pseudo keto state rather than actually being truly elevated blood ketones. And that's really hard to stick to, Cam. So a lot of patients are like, I can do it for a couple of weeks. Maybe it takes me a couple of weeks to even get there, but then they're like, I can't maintain this. So start with really cutting back on everything refined, cut out gluten and all refined carbohydrates, go more paleolithic where you can do more vegetables, you can do proteins, you can increase the fats, Absolutely. But it's not 90% of what you're eating. It might be, 
you know, 30 to 50% of what you're eating. The rest is protein and vegetables, uh, and which are still having a little bit of carbohydrate, but you're not doing grains. And that's a whole nother topic about some of the inflammatory nature of grains specifically. So it's more keto friendly versus full ketogenic. Yeah, like a pseudo keto or like a, a halfway between a paleo keto with some specific removals of, uh, of inflammatory molecules, like from let's say wheat. And some people will find dairy and eggs and corn and soy being some of the top five food allergens. They happen to be also the ones that are most commonly used in every processed food, like soy oil, even though it's a fat has like exponentially multiplied in its use in any sort of food stuff in the, in the North American Western diet. Uh, it was non-existent before. There's a huge spike in any sort of processed fats. So I emphasize cleaning up, you know, identifying what's a good fat, what's an unhealthy fat, anything that's been processed, that's an oil from a seed, uh, other, you know, olive oil is fine. That's from a fruit, but I'm talking about like, cottonseed oil, soybean oil, peanut oil. And if you look at any processed food, those are the oils that are used. Canola oil, you can throw in there as well. Um, so anyways, I think just to finish up on the keto uh, idea, it works really well for some people. It's really hard to stick to. There's not, there's not human evidence yet to say in concussions, it's something that is absolutely recommended. And I may change my tune once that comes out, but I'll just tell you my clinical practice it's just really hard for people to stick to long-term and the type of patients I'm seeing are the, the ones that are been in post-concussion syndrome and post-whiplash syndrome for two or three years. And so this is not a acute injury where I think maybe doing keto for two weeks might actually reverse it really quickly. These are chronic patients that have a lot of dysregulated metabolics. Yeah. Yeah. I would, I would definitely agree with that. Um, just getting back to the idea that it, that it is helpful for some, is there anything that would indicate, you know, to a patient, cause there's a lot of patients that will try it. Yeah. Um, is there anything that people should be concerned about before trying it? Is there anything that might tip them off that, you know, it's just not going to be a good idea for them, or do you just recommend that they avoid it and have a different plan altogether? Well, there's a couple of ways that I alluded to a couple of them already that you can tell if this is right for you. First of all, when you go higher fat already, as you're kind of moving, maybe don't go right into keto. I think there's a, there's an intermediate step and that's what we talk about in the concussion fixed diet. It's like this mo more moderate, much easier to adhere to, um, modified paleo tailored paleo with higher fat content and notice, how do I feel? Do most of my symptoms get better? Great. Then maybe you don't need to go to keto. Um, so once you're there at that step, so don't go from your current diet, which is, you know, for most people could really be improved to keto. You're not going to feel great. And you're probably, you know, that there's a big learning curve. That's number one. Number two, once you get to this intermediate step, when you start increasing the amount of dietary fats, how do you feel? Do you like this way of eating? Or do you feel like the more fat you eat, it's harder for you to digest? We haven't even talked about some of the indigestion issues that people have with going really high fat. You know, digestively, it may actually cause a lot of loose stools. That's a pretty common issue with increasing oils and fats, which you actually have to consume quite a bit of. Some people that are missing the ability to break down fats because they're maybe they've had a gallbladder removed or they have 
gallstones or they have gallbladder inflammation or sludge that also plays the role in the ability to emulsify or break down fats. So gauge, how do you feel when you, when you're eating more fats, you're upping your coconut oil, avocado, uh, you know, good, um, butter, like ghee, those are all rich in, in fats and other fat soluble vitamins. If you feel good, that's a good way of, uh, of knowing that you should maybe proceed. And then finally, a good way of knowing is you can actually supplement with exogenous ketones. And so these are supplements you can do. You can buy, you know, a, a powder or a, a drink of this and you take it. And if you notice, yeah, you know what? I actually feel really clear. I notice that I'm, 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 my symptoms are reducing. I feel better. That's the key sign for me that you're a good candidate for keto because it's kind of like a cheat short-term way of telling, is my brain going to do better when there's high keto ketones? And now you can shift to the diet of being like, yep, I can do it. Right. Right. Now um, let's go into, into kind of um, dietary forms and what's good and what's bad. Like a lot of people will go with, you know, cheeses and things like that, mm-hmm. um, nuts and seeds. So when it comes to, let's say dietary sources of, of good fats, what do you typically recommend for, for people? Yeah. Good question. I, I forgot to answer one part of your question that you asked previously about the, the negative effects. And, and, you know, I right. do also want to point out that, um, the noted effects in the research also are, you know, there could be some kidney issues and some of the, you're processing, not, not the kidneys don't care about the fats, but they care about the breakdown products. You have to process extra ketones. You have to work through, um, some of these met- metabolic systems. So, uh, I know a well-known effect of, you know, eating a high fat diet is, you know, we have to be mindful of some of these potential effects. So that's just a side note. Um, okay. So to your most recent question about what are good fats in general, the most important thing is the least amount of processed fats as possible. So for example, um, you're eating uh, a piece of fish, which has high amounts of omega threes in it. That's a very least processed amount of fat. An omega three supplement is a little bit more processed, but still a really good quality form is going to be a very excellent source of omega-3s. Other foods such as um, uh, mackerel, uh, such as avocados, um, they also are quite rich in fat, but also rich in other things like fiber. So it's not not the purest source of fat because there's other things that may make a person react negatively to that. Um, I think grass-fed butter and ghee are, are quite good. When you start getting into dairy, you're getting into a lot of other proteins like casein and whey that are present that could be more inflammatory can. So I tell people to kind of be more conscious about that, but definitely full fat type of dairy. Uh, I prefer organic because the research is clear to me that when you do eat organic, there is less of the persistent environmental pollutants that are in these particular foods. And, and, and that does make a big difference. Uh, nuts and seeds are definitely ones that um, are quite high in certain omega threes, uh, but they're also high in omega sixes. So it's, we're going to talk about, I'm sure, the difference between omega threes and omega sixes in just a bit. Uh, there, so I always say with nuts and seeds, the category of nuts and seeds is 
the most allergenic, which is another way of saying most immune stimulating group of foods there are. That's why there's so many peanut allergies and, and nut allergies. Uh, and then finally, things like some seeds like flax seeds and chia seeds are really rich in omega-3s. Olive oil is an excellent one. Coconut oil, despite it being maligned in uh, recent times for its uh, high amount of cholesterol, I personally looked at all that research and while cholesterol did go up in coconut oil supplemented groups, so did the good cholesterol, which is HDL. So the all cholesterol went up where it wasn't just the bad cholesterol. So I still think I'm not, uh, I'm not one of these petrified of cholesterol uh, doctors, which is really common in conventional medicine. But I think that from a brain perspective, eating the least processed amounts of, of, um, of sources of cholesterol, like coconut oil, I think is, I think is reasonable to do. And finally, pay attention to the way that foods are processed. For example, a lot of nuts and seeds are roasted. Not a good idea because as soon as you apply heat can to anything, you are going to damage that fat. And so you want to find, that's why we look for extra virgin olive oil. What does that mean? That just means that you refine out the more uh, processed uh, types of oils and you just have the most cold press. You don't apply heat because that heat damages it. And what about cooking with olive oil? It's, there's something called smoke point, which is how, how easily an oil, an oil burns and becomes damaged. And there are some oils that are more advantageous to cook with. Um, olive oil is kind of in the middle of the pack because it has kind of a medium smoke point. It gets, um, you know, like something like flaxseed oil is terrible to cook with because it just gets destroyed right away. Um, coconut oil and grapeseed oil are a little better for cooking, but grapeseed oil is not really a nutritional oil. Um, you know, I think it's mainly just for a little bit of lubrication, but I think olive oil does have as a, from a fat component, it has some benefit to it. Uh, and you can do avocado oil as well. Pretty good for cooking because they have a pretty good smoke point. What about coconut? Yeah. Coconut oil as well. But again, I'm a foodie. So doing coconut oil with certain foods, I don't, uh, I don't love the, the taste, but absolutely. If that fits with what you want to do, you can do it for sure. But just cook on the lowest heat possible cook with uh, with liquid, uh, like water or some sort of jus or some sort of broth that, that decreases that damage. There's something called advanced glycation end products or AGEs for short. And that is basically the chemical reaction that occurs when you heat something that has fat in it and that damages the fat. It's the same thing as if I put my arm under one of those red lights that heats up something in the cafeteria eventually will start to burn or in the sun that, that, that is my, my skin and my cells are made up a lot of by fats in, in the cellular membrane, cholesterol, and many other uh, cellular membrane um, fats and phospholipids. So that's damage to those things. So the same thing happens to chicken. That's why chicken is really high in omega sixes because, um, and if you roast it, uh, and you really burn the side of it or put it in the barbecue, as tasty as it is, there's a lot of, you know, negative um, and possibly detrimental substances that are produced by that. And so I think everyone knows eating a charred piece of meat is a bad idea, but there's also shades of gray where, you know, if there's a little bit um, burnt and charred also creates that. So anyways, these are little tips and tricks that might 
um, allow you to eat, eat good fats and proteins, but minimize the detrimental effects of these AGEs. Brought up cholesterol and 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 coconut oil. Um, isn't, isn't cholesterol going to be a byproduct of a higher fat diet regardless, just because it's a transport mechanism? Well, it's naturally found in food scams. So, you know, you can have eat a piece of steak, um, or consume coconut oil and you will have a lot more cholesterol than a, a vegan. will. for sure. There's no doubt. Um, vegetarians and especially vegans have, next to no cholesterol in their diet, very little. And there are pundits and influencers out there that, that, that say that is, you know, the most important thing. And that's if you buy into that cholesterol is the be all and end all to cardiovascular disease, which it's not, it's the way cholesterol is damaged. Um, just as a quick little sidebar, um, the whole issue with cholesterol is that when it becomes oxidized, it's, it's, it's actually used by the body as a, almost like a patching system for your blood vessels. So if there's cracks in your blood vessels, there's inflammation in your blood vessels, there's damage from free radical stress, then your cholesterol is going to be, that's where that plaque comes from. It, it's kind of like used as a patch. And if you have a ton of cholesterol floating around, then yeah, it's going to be used there and it's going to build up and it's going to clog your arteries. But it's also, there's inflammation. There's also calcification that occurs. And, and we could go down a million rabbit holes, but it's like deficiencies in nutrients like vitamin K and magnesium that decrease calcification. So I think there's a lot of other factors in cardiovascular disease that are equally or more important than cholesterol. And if you just look at, no, I want to reduce cholesterol, then I think you're really doing yourself a disservice because there's a lot of other beneficial things in some cholesterol rich foods that can be really helpful. Like for example, eggs with choline, they're rich in cholesterol, but choline is an amino, is a phospholipid that gets incorporated in the cellular membrane. That is a really important piece of keeping your cellular membrane functional. It's the mm. 53% of your cellular membrane is phosphatidylcholine. And so that is something that can really become damaged and oxidized after a concussion. My like, just kind of way of thinking of it is, is yeah, more along the lines of, of inflammation. Um, and then, and then also pairing that with, with the cholesterol. So it's like the scarring of the inflammation right. then, then, then the cholesterol. So it's like eating a lot of sugars and high cholesterol, <laughs> like kind and of that's what the research shows Cam. And, yeah. and, you know, it's funny. Sometimes when you look at the research headline, it says high fat diet causes this inflammation. And then yeah. when you start looking into it, we, you and I have gone over this so yeah. many times. It's like, no, this is, they're, they're eating a highly refined fat. And so it's not a high fat diet. It's a refined fat and sugar diet. And the, that combination together really messes around with your insulin that really propagates more inflammation, causes more damage to the vasculature and cellular structures. It decreases the body's ability to quench free radicals and stress. And bingo, bango, you get yourself, uh, you know, an inflammatory cascade that cholesterol and fats can be part of if they are damaged. Let's talk about omega-3, omega-6. Um, yeah. ba balance uh, sources, um, supplementation, and how they, I know you've talked about this a number of times before, but just competing enzymes. And, you know, because I know mm -hmm. some people like, even doctors still recommend that you take just an omega supplement with your three, six, nine, 
And to me, that's counterproductive because you're just, you're, they're competing against each other anyway. So what are you really doing? Mm -hmm. So anyway, touch on that good fats, bad fats and competing for enzymes and why it's important to kind of make sure the balance is shifted in favor. Yeah. That's a, that's a really important question. Cause I, uh, as you said, I think it's still really poorly understood. I think in general, we can all agree that omega threes are good for us in general. There's, I think an over, overwhelming amount of research showing that we have, um, you know, that, that there is brain protective effects. Uh, there is research on specifically animal models, post-concussion, uh, we, it, and there's a lot of variation in dosing there. And there's a lot of variation in the quality of research. And there's a lot of variation in the types of omega-3s because there's omega-3s, 6s, 7s, and 9s. Uh, and we've, we, we get, put a lot of attention on the omega-3s. But um, recently, what I've really kind of zeroed in on is that it's, it's actually, as you pointed out in your question, it's about having a balance of omega-3s versus omega-6s. And let's just take a step back here, looking at things historically. If you look at some of the anthropological data and evolutionary biology data, you can kind of glean some pieces of information that um, scientists kind of think that, you know, in areas where the Western processed diet was not highly consumed, let's say, for example, like... Um, some of the areas of the world that are called blue zones, like uh, Macedonian mountains in Greece is one of them. They have the highest, one of the highest life expectancies. Their omega-6 to omega-3 ratio is close to like one to one or one to two. So for every omega-1, omega-3 that you have, there's one or two omega-6s. And that was kind of the historical ratio, I think. But ever since kind of like the 19, you know, ever since processed food became highly available, that, that, to make things processed, you have to use fats that are high in omega-6s because they are excellent for, for keeping things shelf stable. Enter in things like, you know, canola oil, soybean oil, and a lot of these in mass industrial uh, plant-based oils. And then also you introduce things like trans fats in there that are really problematic. And with that, the ratio totally got skewed. So omega-3s might've been kind of staying the same and maybe maybe going down a bit more because it was like, it was overwhelmed by a lot more of these more processed foods, but the omega-6 consumption went through the roof. So um, a lot of people are like, well, omega-3s, we've kind of kept the consumption the same, the same over time. That's true. But what happened is that there's a ratio in our cells of omega-3s to omega-6s. And if that ratio is disturbed, like it has been for the last 60 years, that's when more inflammation occurs because that cellular membrane can, that's where all the action happens from, an, from a cellular infla uh, inflammatory cascade perspective. And so if you now have a cellular membrane that is deficient omega-3s, you are not going to be able to create a proper anti-inflammatory response. And this is so important to remember. Because a lot of people think that omega-3s um, lower inflammation, which is true. However, they also help resolve inflammation. That's a huge consideration because a lot of, a lot of times we think about, let's just suppress it. Let's stop it. Let's, let's like do Advil and block inflammation. Right. But the, the difference between omega-3s and Advil is that they also help 
get rid of the inflammation in the final step, which is called resolving inflammation. So the health of your cellular membrane cam is, is, is absolutely quintessential to your overall brain health and your overall body health and the ratio of these omega sixes and threes. So I, I want to just kind of correct a little bit is like, well, there's nothing fundamentally wrong with omega sixes. It, what is the problem is the balance of them. And we have way too many. And for all the different things we talked about, uh, and we have, uh, and, uh, and that ratio change is what has throwing us off from a disease perspective. So let's talk about foods then that are high in omega-6, because it seems to me the balance would be to try and restore this balance. You'd want to increase omega-3 consumption and decrease omega-6 for the average person. Now, what foods are people eating that they might not even know are high in omega-6? You mentioned processed foods. Yeah. What else? What else is going to be high in omega-6? Because those are, those are things probably to start cutting back on. And then we'll talk about boosting omega-3 and then how supplementation yeah. plays into that. Like, can you supplement your way? out of this. And we'll, we'll, we'll start with number one there, which is omega six. Sure. So I've alluded to some of them already. Um, but pretty much a safe thing to say is any food that will last on a shelf for longer than like, you know, a couple of days has some omega sixes in it. You mean my barbecue uh, lays, my barbecue lays chips got to yes. go. Damn. Yes, those are good that, though. Those are good. I know. I know. And the <laughs> number one thing on the list is chips. Yeah. corn chips specifically because like it's not just corn the corn itself is corn oil that's a massively um that, that, that food itself is high in omega-6 oils it corn oil is pro-inflammatory but also the way that they're baked even if they're baked or fried there is some oil added and so that's heated oil plus a food a substance that is highly starchy you have literally the trifecta of pro-inflammatory things. And I'm a chip guy, enjoy it. <laughs> but I'm just saying that if you want to really limit omega-6s, that's a big place to start is chips. Uh, any processed foods, any kind of fast foods like French fries, because again, the oil- Another favorite. Those, those potatoes soak up oil, right? Uh, any sort of like gravies, dippings, chicken is actually quite high in omega-6s. Um, cured meats, pepperoni, like uh, typical red meats is, is high in omega-6s. Uh, the main omega-6 is called the arachidonic acid, which, you know, there's, there's hundreds of publications showing that that is a pro-inflammatory fat. Um, and then now you combine the consumption of some of these things with uh, a, a slightly deficient intake of omega-3s, and you have this like massive amount of omega-6s, which create a more inflammatory response and you don't have anything to buffer it. So it's about decreasing omega-6s. So let's go over the list again. Chips, processed foods, fast foods, any sort of like um, margarine type of stuff, you're going to get that in it. You're going to get any plant oil, soybean oil, corn oil, peanut oil. Uh, chicken is a big one as well. Dairy products are higher in omega-6s, peanut butter and cured meats. Those are my top like 10 right there. Um, safflower oil as well. You um, go, so, uh, yeah. just, just to kind of bring it back around to chicken, does it matter free range, anything like that? Or is it just chicken in general? It's just chicken in general, Cam, because that's just the type of fat composition. What free range does is that it decreases the um, stress of the animal. Well, there's that, but I was even going to say like, the bioaccumulation of some of the possible chemicals. There's also the hormones. That's a totally separate thing. That's important. 
the type of feed a chicken eats, which is typically what free range means. So they're not stressed, but they're also eating naturally what's on the ground in terms of seeds and bugs. So you have a better amino acid and specifically fat soluble vitamin profile in the meats. Uh, so you do have a slightly better profile of, of omega threes to omega sixes and fat soluble nutrients, but still in general, like animal meat is going to have a little bit, it's going to have more cholesterol. It's going to have more omega sixes. Cause that's what it's made up of. Okay. Let's go to omega three. What's high in omega three good sources. Well, obviously fish oil is massive. Uh, so um, in that list, kind of the top four things are mackerel, salmon, cod liver oil, sardines, and herrings. You can use the acronym SMASH, you know, salmon, mackerel, anchovies, um, sardines, sardines and herrings. Yeah. And so that, uh, that's a really good um, acronym for high omega-3s, low persistent organic pollutants, because that is always, you know, we ask our pregnant women not to consume too much fish. Why? Because there is, we know there is mercury and there are things present that are possibly dangerous. So we're trying to minimize that. So that acronym is good to follow. And then from a plant-based perspective, you can do things like flax seeds and chia seeds and other nuts and seeds like walnuts. But just note that walnuts also are higher in omega-6s. And there's also other substances in walnuts that have other beneficial effects, like even other types of like uh, antioxidant substances. So walnuts is, a, is, I would say net still a positive thing, but it, it's, it's a little bit more balanced. So you definitely need to increase those cam, but the secret, and this is what um, the most recent data is showing is you also have to reduce your omega sixes at the same time. So if you want to get the full benefit of omega threes, you can't just up your omega threes and keep eating your chips and fast foods. You need to decrease those that up your omega-3s at the same time. And that's where it shows, you know, decreased incident and headaches, decreased pain. And you have some of these positive shifts in metabolism. Uh, just a quick note on, on um, grass-fed meat versus um, sure. just regular kind of, you know, grocery store meat, um, you know, grain-fed. It's funny, I've seen some stores advertise grain-fed beef as if it's a good thing. Um, and anyway, so... I've, well, the reason is, is that because it tastes really good. Like that's like, it, it, it comes down to that. Right. But also, but also people just hear that, Oh, something fed, I can't remember. Maybe it is corn, you know, Grass and then they, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Then they, then they go for it. Right. Oh, corn. Fed. Okay. Yeah. That I think that's the good one. Right. And people don't necessarily make that distinction, <laughs> but um, so uh, omega three, omega six. Um, I've heard some people say that grass fed meat is actually high in omega three. Now, we consider beef usually to be higher in omega-6. Where do you, where do you, how do you? Uh... Well, beef's high in saturated fats in general. Uh, also some fat soluble vitamins uh, and, uh, you know, like, uh, you know, butter, for example, also is, is high in really some nutritive substances like butyrate and, and vitamin K cheeses are high in, in vitamin K, but specifically beef. There is some omega threes, but in reality, nowhere close to the ratio that you find in fish. Like there's some there, but it's not, to me, it's not like a, a source of omega threes that I would be banking on as my chief intake of omega threes. So yeah. to basically shift your levels. No, that's not going to happen. Can I supplement my way out of it? So for example, like I 
I do not like fish. Like I just hate fish, never eat it. I grew up fishing, hunting, all that fun stuff. Yeah, I'll eat, I'll, I'll, I'll <laughs> eat. It was one of those things like I'd, I'd catch them and clean them and then everyone else would eat them. But uh, when it, when, when it comes to like, you know, walleye, for example, which is, which is, you know, kind of the Northern Ontario staple, um, I'm okay with that. Now, when it comes to like salmon, like I can't even be a room if somebody's cooking salmon, like it's just, it just, uh-huh. it's, I, I walk into a restaurant and there's fish there. It's like, I want to get out of there. Like it just, mm. it just makes me physically ill to even think about it. So now what do I do? Can I supplement my way out of this? Like, I mean, I take a couple of fish oil capsules every day. Is that enough? You know, what do other people do that have this? Cause I'm not the only one that hates fish. Trust me. No. So, so can people, can people supplement the way out of it? Do you recommend that they try that? Yeah. So I, I think for most people that live in a landlocked country, they don't have access to fresh fish, you know, it's harder to find and source. So there's also a bit of a price issue and there's also a contamination issue, which we talked about. All those are legit issues that are obstacles to getting optimal fish consumption. And I don't advocate for fish and seafood consumption like twice a week, even though they're high in omega-3s, there's too many other things that are detrimental as part of it. So I think that really opens the door to you kind of have to supplement. And and why, the reason we have to supplement, I think is because we're just the prevalence of omega-6s are so high that we have to like rebalance that. We're gonna have to find a, a little bit more of a happy medium. So um, I'll, I'll, I'll use a, a, a study that, that I just reviewed recently that, um, that I think did, does a really good job of, um, highlighting your question of like, can you supplement your way out of this? You know, there are, there's studies in NFL, because obviously this is one of the key things that, um, sports are looking at is like, what are some of the biomarkers of, of deficiencies in some of the athletes that we have at the collegial level? Um, and they found, they compared basically, um, they threw a food survey and, and, and they've tracked their blood four times throughout a season, preseason, um, starting season, mid season, and after the season. And then they looked at what was the, um, you know, what was the, the change in these, these blood markers. And they found that, um, most people, most athletes were in the lowest level of, your omega-3 index and your omega-3 index is the most widely accepted way of testing how much omega-3s you have in your cellular membrane. It's a simple blood blood prick or blood draw and you can test these things. Uh, And the range is if it's uh, below four, you're in the highest risk. If it's between four and eight, you're in moderate risk and above eight, you're in the lowest risk for And this, again, has not been studied for concussion, but it's for cardiovascular, all-cause mortality, meaning you death from any cause, and also uh, neurocognitive issues, um, specifically related to neurodegenerative diseases. And they found these athletes in their like prime of their kind of like lives in their 20s and their and uh, late teens, you know, they had an omega index of four, which is uh, just above the range that they wanted to. So even the people that were supplementing, they noticed that the, the, the difference between the two was very, very small. It was like marginal difference between the ones that were supplementing and the ones that weren't. So I think that, um, I think that you, you can supplement and definitely diet. What, what my takeaway from this is, is that 
diet is not enough. You have to supplement and supplementation does it, but you have to supplement in the right dose. So that was, I think, the conclusion that I kind of pulled from that, uh, from that study. And they did find that those people that did supplement, they had lower levels of um, a particular marker called NFL, neurofilament light, which is kind of like a, one of the emerging biomarkers for potential um, neurological issues after a brain injury was still yet to be determined fully, but it's just one of the markers they were using. And they did find that omega-3 supplementation did improve that. So at least that's positive information. Um, I want to come back to that um, study in a bit when we talk about kind of prevention and like long-term effects sure. and, and, and stuff that we're seeing in some professional athletes. And I want to bring that back. Now, I just, just quickly before we do that, um, the testing for this, you mentioned, you know, yeah. quick, quick blood draw um, or, 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 or finger prick. Is this something that people can get done at their physician's office? Is this usually something that must go through, you know, functional medicine or, or naturopathic or how do people get yeah. this done? Do you recommend people get this done? Is it even worth getting done? Um, and yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's, it's honestly, even in naturopathic medicine is one of those tests that doesn't get a lot of uh, attention. It doesn't get a lot of play and push it. You know, I'll be honest, even in my practice, I think the assumption for most people is that you're deficient and you just have to take it. But the problem with that is, is Cam, uh, if you take it and then you're still deficient. So I have a ton of people that are like, oh yeah, I'm taking omega-3, but then they still scored low. Right. And so it's obviously not, you're not getting in, not getting enough. Maybe, maybe the form that you're using is, is not bioavailable at all. So right. those are three variables. So I can't, I, I, to be honest, it's one of those things that it's on my, um, to-do list over the next couple of years to like really try to find a good way and be more consistent with testing more people. Uh, because I think it is helpful for us to understand not only what your current levels are because of just the broad ranging positive impact that you could get if you're in optimal range, but also am I actually moving into those ranges after supplementing rather than just it's really a total guess at this point. And with vitamin D, we always say test it and then we retest it to see if you're actually getting it. And there are some people that are absolutely in range. And there's some people came that they're like, oh, wow, I just went up like five points. What happened? I was taking my vitamin D the whole time. That happens all the time, more mm -hmm. than you think. Mm -hmm. Now, um, just a quick question on that. So is this test looking at your omega-3 to omega-6 ratio? So for example, if people are not improving despite supplementation, could that be because they still have just too much omega-6 in their diet? That's, that's kind of, I don't know, out competing omega-3 or, or, you know, what do you kind of make of that? It's hard to know, like why, you know, some of these people are still, you know, being low. I think the, the problem with some of these studies can is that when they say they're supplementing, then I don't, I think it really is um, inconsistent with how much, what's the dose, you know, it, uh, we really don't have a good idea about what all those things actually are um, and what those factors are. So I think that um, a, a better study would be, you know, doing a very specific intervention and doing the same type of tracking with like a high dose omega-3 fish oil and maybe at different even doses mm -hmm. um, and to, to have it comparable both in males and females over a period of let's say a year and then do the omega score there. And so there is more and more research like every month 
I'm scanning the research and, and, and I'm finding that some, some of this stuff is coming out, uh, but it, we're still, um, you know, we still can't hundred percent say, you know, exactly those nuances of the question you asked. Right. Right. Uh, okay. So I see a question here. Um, this guy asks, I've always been a macro guy. Is there any evidence to a minimum amount of fat being beneficial after concussion? <clears throat> no, I guess this is the best way to say it. I don't know if there's like a, a minimum amount of fat that you should be consuming. I think, you know, a standard diet, uh, you know, has maybe 20% fat. And I think we should increase that to um, maybe doing 45 uh, over or 50% fat, seeing if that makes a difference. So like going from 30 to 50, would I think be a reasonable amount. So like consider what you have that you're on a given plate and make sure that you're eating lots of extra fats. That might actually mean like a, a spoon of uh, medium chain triglycerides, a spoon of olive oil, it's gotta be extra. Uh, thoughts about how a pregnant woman with gallstones can get enough healthy fats without aggravating gallstones open to animal-based supplements or otherwise plant-based diet. Okay. Sounds uh, tricky. It's a good question. Um, I would say small amounts with every meal is the best thing. So like doing, still doing omega threes, generally omega threes, I think get uh, a pretty bad uh, rap by conventional medicine saying, oh, it's going to like make your blood thin out. It's going to make you bleed out. The, all that's been debunked by the latest research showing that it actually improves bleeding times after surgeries. Hmm. The only thing to watch out for is if you uh, have, you know, if you're on blood thinners, that's, that does play sometimes a role, but something like um, vitamin E is much more blood thinning than let's say uh, omega threes. So I think that's not so much an issue. So small amounts with each meal would be the best idea for somebody that's pregnant. And uh, one that's a little bit higher in DHA would be ideal. DHA. Hopefully you got that. Yeah. Um, okay. Let's go back to that NFL study. Well, it was actually a college football study, but these were NFL recruits. Uh, if I remember mm -hmm. correctly, it's been a few months since I read this study, but sorry, I was covering my mic there. I realized it was not coming through. Um, it's, it's been a few months since I've read this study, but like you said, basically almost every single person or maybe even every single person was deficient in omega-3 as well as some other things, right? They were deficient, I believe, in vitamin D. They were deficient in magnesium. They were deficient in uh, some other things. They had high inflammatory markers as well. If, um, I think there was... Um, no, I, I'll, I have the study out in front yeah, of me. It's, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. It, was, uh, it was April 2021. Uh, it was, um, it was looking at omega-3 index. It was looking at the arachidonic acid to EPA right. fatty acid ratio. So that's omega-6 yeah. to omega-3. Remember these omega-3s can, they compete for enzymes. So that's one thing I didn't mention uh, when we were talking about the ratios. It, you, you need to have balance because if you have just one that's really high, like high amounts of omega-6s, it blocks your ability to activate and use your omega-3s. So that's why you need to have both. Um, it also the test the the study also looked at homocysteine, which is a marker of inflammation yeah. and also potential methylation. So that's the how you activate your B vitamins, and vitamin D and RBC magnesium. And like the results were terrible, basically is the best way to put it. So like omega three index for all these athletes were was at four point six percent, and we want to be 
over eight and anything below four is at the highest risk. Uh, the oh man, this the, this one you're going to get a kick out of the uh, arachidonic acid to EPA ratio was 29 when you optimally want it less than three or four. So it means like we have a massive amount of omega sixes compared to omega three. So your 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 cells are in a pre-inflammatory state. So when you get hit in the head or when you have any sort of trauma and injury, you're not going to have the ideal inflammatory response. You're already going to have lots. Yeah. You, well, <laughs> you're already inflamed, but you're primed for, for inflammation cam. Yeah. You're like ready to produce tons of inflammation and you don't have enough substances that are going to promote re resolution of inflammation. That's what's so important about omega threes. They improve resolution. Uh, homocysteine, you want to be Ideally, I like below seven, uh, below uh, eight or nine, and they they were at uh, eleven, so they were high, so they were uh, suboptimal in B vitamins. Uh, Ninety percent of athletes, by the way, were were in this uh, in this category. They were suboptimal. Uh, vitamin D was at thirty. Uh, thirty is seventy five nanomoles. That's like the cutoff in Canada. So you want to be above thirty. You want to be for vitamin D is really important for muscle formation, as well as inflammation regulation, uh, has a play a role to play with magnesium. Uh, it has, I, I could go down the list. It's massive. And so they were below that range. And, uh, in Canada, by the way, that is from hundred to 150 is the optimal range. And then finally RBC magnesium, which is red blood cell magnesium. The range is anywhere from 4.5 to 6.5. They were at 4.1. So they were even below the optimal range. And by the way, this is not the magnesium that you get done in regular blood tests. You have to specifically request RBC magnesium because this is the magnesium inside your red blood cells, where if you just get regular electrolytes done at the hospital, then you're going to do serum magnesium, which is way more inaccurate. And that's not the same thing. So Ken, most athletes, 50% of athletes had five problematic values. So all five were off in fit half the athletes. So now think about the rest of the population. Oh yeah. It's right. Not much better. Right. I think it'd be, it'd be probably worse, right? These guys usually, especially at the collegiate level, have people running their diets. They usually have, you know, training regimens, supplementation regimens, you, think, yeah. um, you know, they're in there. A lot of them are in, you know, peak physical condition. Um, you know, you could talk about how that might deplete some things too, especially on your electrolyte levels, like magnesium and stuff when you're mm -hmm. constantly exercising and if you're not replacing it well. Now let's just talk about concussion then from like a pathophysiological standpoint, you're low in magnesium, you yeah. know, you know, magnesium can reduce concussion severity if you have optimal levels. And that's been, you know, discussed, uh, quite a bit, um, and then you have omega threes, which have been used both in treatment and in terms of like neuroprotective and they're deficient in that mm -hmm. they're high in inflammatory markers. We know that, you know, they're prime for inflammation. We know that concussion, especially persistent symptoms is related to inflammation. Not only that now, one of the biggest theories behind chronic traumatic encephalopathy, which is the, is the long-term neurodegenerative effects that are attributed to concussion injuries is actually related to chronic inflammation and permeability of the blood brain barrier. And just this chronic inflammatory response happening within the nervous system, causing ongoing damage, you know, perpetually. So it's like, now we're starting to think now, is this really a 
concussion problem, or if we were to optimize people that are at high risk for concussion, and if we were to pay attention to this stuff, could we actually potentially reduce the chances of this happening, uh, reduce the likelihood that people are going to have these long-term consequences, improve recovery after concussion. Um, you know, I think that this is something that's just being completely missed. We just, we're just not even thinking about it. And the funny thing is when you talk to most medical practitioners about diet, they have no clue. They have no idea. They don't even, ah, that doesn't matter. You know, like it's Uh. just completely dismissed. And it's just, it's ridiculous. It's just ridiculous. If you look at all the research on any sort of psych, uh, psychological disease, it's all now looking at, uh, you know, cytokines, interleukins, markers of inflammation, like CRP, you know, uh, you and I were talking about a paper recently that came out from my alma mater McMaster, where we, they were looking at these particular profiles of inflammatory cytokines. And then I think the connection that we just have to be very clear with cam is that, you know, what does diet have to do with that? Well, if you're not convinced that diet has an influence on inflammation, you're not looking at the research because there's a ton of research showing that when you eat a certain way in the, a lot of what we've already talked about, uh, decreasing inflammatory and, and highly refined foods, changing the omega-3 and omega-6 ratios in your diet, decreasing insulin and high sugar foods, you're going to be decreasing inflammation. That is now well-established in the literature. And so that is something that should be a massive priority for anybody that treats concussion. And that's what I do with my patients. But to be honest, is that I don't get to see patients until they're already months and years out. I need we need this right away after somebody Mm -hmm. gets injured. This Mm -hmm. has to be given to people so like one of my dreams, and I know it's one of yours, is that, you know, I want to reach, you know, all the young people that are getting concussions and being like, hey, don't just go home and rest. This is a dot you can eat for a week or two weeks that is going to be helpful. And um, I think that now the research is getting more clear that this is as much as it is a structural issue, it's also an inflammatory metabolic issue that's contributing to this. Yeah. And I mean, we like, we'll talk about persistent concussion symptoms too, right? Like it'd be great to get these guys in the acute stages, but we have a lot of people, especially watching on our lives, listening to this podcast, um, you know, following us on social media that have ongoing persistent symptoms and they fall into this category as well. And they can do this stuff, right? A lot of people think, well, it's too late for me, or I can't make these changes. And no, they can. We have a diet in, in our concussion fix program that we give to all members. And it's, it's the single most important thing that I see patients in the concussion fix program that are like, once I changed my diet, that was it. Right. And so mm-hmm. it's like, it's so like, it's opened my eyes completely to how significant this, this is and how much, how much sure. help this, this, this could be. Um, you know, anyway, let's, uh, let's, let's flip over and see if we have any questions in the, um, one question is how do we go about educating doctors? That's a good one. Why don't we start with that one? <laughs> well, I mean, I think Cam, you probably would be a, you know, a good guy to answer that because we're, we're, we're trying, like we are actually educating doctors. That's part of like the program that we do with a complete concussion management. Um, now these doctors are doctors that are trying to, um, trying to find a solution for their patients, i.e. like chiropractors and physios, but I think the population that is really difficult to reach is medical doctors mm-hmm. uh, and, and both specialists and primary care providers. 
I think nurse practitioners need to get uh, aware of this. And the reality and the frustrating part is that this is the group that holds all the power to kind of get people back to work, back to school, uh, diagnoses, prescription rights, and they're the ones that actually know the least about this. And they, yeah. and they, to be honest, they don't really even care. No, they just get well, told what part of the education, right? I mean, there's tons of research on how little they actually get. We've looked at all that research. Right now. I think that, I think the big thing, and we're starting, we're obviously seeing this is that a lot of that education and mindset is driven by pharma interests. There's yes. no, there's no money in omega-3 supplementation, right? There's more money in an anti-inflammatory. There's more money in cortisone injections. There's more money in Botox injections. There's more money in a pill for this. And that's usually where they'll go. And that's the thing that bothers me is this usually comes with side effects that actually create more harm than good. And so I try to get people to think about this in a natural way. Let's fix the problem. Let's not just max, like mask the symptom. Um, and that's, I think the issue with breaking through to the medical profession is that a lot of them are indoctrinated into, you know, well, I didn't learn about it in med school. Therefore it doesn't exist because they're there. It's just, it's just, uh, they've skipped over nutrition 100%. And, it's, and it's, that's yeah. the, that's the problem. So it's not any fault of their own. It's just, that's just what the bias is because their, their assumption is that if they didn't hear about it, it's not really an issue. Right. I was taught everything about physiology in the body and I never learned about nutrition. So therefore nutrition doesn't matter. And that's extremely short-sighted. Now there's a faction of medicine that's picking up to this right. Functional medicine doctors are starting to, you know, mm-hmm. um, you know, get into this. And I think that's, but they're outside of the system cam, right? Like functional medicine doctors. These are doctors that have are, are courageous in a sense that they've stepped out from the comfort zone of hospital setting or in like these private, um, you know, family care teams where, you know, you just kind of like see a ton of patients and maximize the numbers rather than like functional medicine, naturopathic medicine, you, you it's about time spent yeah. with patients and you're seeing, you know, 10 people a day rather than 50 people a day. And you're spending 30 minutes, an hour, understanding a person's case, reviewing diet, uh, tweaking diets and, and modifying it based on what the person presents with. So, you know, the, the model in a sense is broken and mm-hmm. not, I agree with you totally that it's a pharma based model, but there's also the fee model is all in the interest of, of quick fixes. There's right. no emphasis on, yeah, let me sit down and I'll, at least I can explain in five minutes what, you know, how, what resources I want you to go see, but there's not even time mm-hmm. for that. It's like a script our referral and I'm done. I'm out. The, 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 the irony of that, especially in Canada where we have, you know, public medicine um, and it's, it's actually, you know, worse outcomes, right? So rather than, rather than getting to the root cause of the problem, we end up spending more money because these people have to be seen and end up with chronic disease. If we were to take a more long view of this and say, well, this is stupid. We're just continually patching this leak in the wall rather than fixing it. Right. I think that we would have, we would have a a, a healthier society. We would, it would cost a hell of a lot less money. Um, And yeah, I think there's, there's, we have a reactive medicine system, Cam. And then, and so it's, it's like, it's like, you have to like, almost like build it from the ground up again. To, to like to fix it it's 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 almost impossible to just try to patch it mm-hmm. it is it is all about like okay 
are you going to die or you have severe issues then let's deal with that and then we have to move on but you're totally right long term this would be absolutely better but you could apply the same thinking not just in concussion but in every chronic health issue that's what i'm saying that's what i'm just saying from arthritis for example you know it's also inflammatory yeah so everything they're looking at mental health disorders now being all inflammatory alzheimer's is attributed to chronic inflammation like every heart disease chronic inflammation like it all comes down to this now where's inflammation coming from right this is because the foods we're eating are not meant to be digested by humans. <laughs> they're, they're so processed, right? And that's going to cause inflammatory immune responses in your body. Okay. Have time for a couple, couple questions uh, from the chat. And uh, one person is asking just about vitamin D. Uh, what are some reasons that a person's vitamin D level would not increase even with supplementation? What could be going on? How can yep. they improve? So three options. Number one, the supplement that you actually have is not uh, potent, meaning that it, there's nothing there. It's possible. I've seen it. That's something to definitely consider. Um, number two, um, you, you, as part of, a, uh, as part of answering that you want usually a fat soluble. So like in a, in a liquid or in a soft gel, and that is usually a better sign. Uh, number two, always take it with meals. Vitamin D is all better absorbed with meals. Uh, number three, you might not be getting enough of it. Sometimes you just are getting uh, too little and you have to actually super saturate. You might need to take five, 10,000 IUs and obviously talk to your doctor, get yourself tested and then and go from there. If you're low, usually go much higher. And you also need to have uh, some um, cofactors that are required to absorb it. So for example, bile and lipase, breaking it down, absorbing it. And then finally, I said three, but there's actually four. You may not actually be able to absorb it well. So a lot of people that have digestive issues, gastric bypass issues, celiac, I just saw one this morning, that these are people predisposed to nutrition, nutrient deficiencies, really well documented and studied. You might be one of those people that you have something going on digestively that is not allowing you to absorb it. So have to consider all four of those. Um, just, just a comment from um, Emily here. Hey, Emily, how are you? Uh, she's a, she's a colleague of mine here. Uh, do you think they might be, um, um, reticent to prescribe supplements because people don't have coverage? I hear this all the time, even for like prescribe, like people to physio, the worry is from the medical community. Well, they don't have coverage. Well, they might have coverage or they might be willing to pay out of pocket. So it's just this, because I think it's just because they have it in their mind that, well, this care is free. So I'm just going to keep them in this system. Whereas they may be willing to actually go out of pocket for something that, you know, could, could help. And I think that's a, that's a probably a good thing. Well, think about it this way, Cam. And we've seen so many of these patients, the patients that we see, the ones that fall through the cracks, almost one of the most common reoccurring themes is that they got really crappy care at the beginning of their injury. They, they cut, whether they, they personally cut quarters, whether the, their medical professional um, told them to go home and rest and stay in a dark room, they didn't get good advice at the beginning. So I think if you are really proactive at the beginning of any sort of injury, especially a concussion, and that might mean, yes, you're going to pay out of pocket for physio for four sessions over the span of a month, but that might be the difference between you having chronic PCS or having a concussion that resolves in two or three weeks. Right. So do the math on that. What's right. worse, yeah. losing five years of your life and not working or the potential of that or Yes. Oh, you know what? I'm going to spend, um, you know, 75 bucks on uh, four times. 
Yeah. Think about that, you know, like, oh, I don't want to supplements. Also, this idea that healthcare is free is a total um, optical illusion. (laughs) Because, again, it's like, do you want to use the bare minimum or do you want to use the best? And the best is not the current healthcare model for chronic issues in most cases. It's what can I get away with? Why do doctors, and sorry, I'm getting on a rant here, but I'm just going to keep going. Uh, Why do doctors not want to do blood tests? Most of the time they're, they, they generally stick to the bare minimum that I don't want to do vitamin D. I don't want to pay. I want to pay for it. No, I don't think it's necessary. Why? Because they're always thinking about how can I get the least amount? How can I do the least amount to mm-hmm. get the bare minimum information that I need mm-hmm. instead of the, the, the thought process that someone like myself has is what's the most comprehensive profile I can do that makes sense from an evidence and a clinical presentation perspective that will give us the most insight on how to treat this patient. Right. That's a totally different approach. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I'm off my soapbox. I think that was good. That's a good place to end it. Let's see. Somebody says maybe the insurance company should cover supplements. I agree. All right. Dr. Herkel. Thank you very much. Always a pleasure. We always, uh, we always get into me, Cam. Really appreciate it. This is good. Uh, Everyone who is listening, uh, we're back again next week. What topic are we doing? Let me look. I'm talking about concussion in children. What's the difference in pediatrics versus adults? Um, And I don't know where I'll take it, but we'll see at the time. Cool. Cheers, guys. Thanks, Cam. See you guys. Take care, everyone. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Complete Concussion Management Podcast. If you like the show, please subscribe and let us know by leaving a review. Have questions about concussion management for future episodes? Submit them to our website, Facebook, or even Instagram. See you next time.